Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working Radio Show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is entitled, What Are You Giving Your Life To? According to financial experts, most people don't invest. But according to Jesus, everyone invests. They may not invest money, but everyone invests their life in something. That something will always be whatever they believe holds forth the best promise for meaning, happiness, and fulfillment. And their passion will follow their investment. That's where their focus will be. That's what they will serve. And that's what will shape them and their life. While the different ways to invest one's life in pursuit of meaning, happiness, and fulfillment would seem to be endless, Jesus tells us that they all fall into two categories. Either we are investing our lives in keeping with the values, loves, and loyalties of this fallen world, or we are investing our lives in keeping with the values, loves, and loyalties of the kingdom of heaven, which through Christ has broken into this fallen world and is transforming it. Every investment is measured by two qualities, security and rate of return. Jesus assures us that no matter what the appearances may be at any given time and place, investing our lives according to the values, loves, and loyalties of the kingdom of heaven is hands down the best investment one can ever make. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This morning we will be considering Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. So let's read together Matthew six nineteen through 24. This is the word of God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let us pray. God and Father, we pray now that by the Spirit you would open up your word to us, and that through it you would convict us of our sins, you would correct our ways, you would change our minds and our hearts, and that you would make us strong and willing to serve you, that we would Uh, both glorify you and know your pleasure and blessing upon us to the end that all the ends of the earth would turn to you and be saved and would gladly own Jesus as Lord by the Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've just finished considering uh, the Lord's Prayer, which comes right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount which is a long sermon. So as we're moving out of the Lord's Prayer and we're starting on basically the second half, kind of the home stretch 
of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's good for us to get our bearings. Because a lot of times understanding what Jesus is saying at a particular point uh, depends on understanding what he's saying in a bigger context. So remember that Jesus started this long sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, by announcing a bunch of blessings. And when he did that, of course, he's really calling into the mind to all of these Israelites, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, preaching the law of God to God's people before they're about to enter the land and to receive his covenant blessings. And so by announcing all of these blessings, and we saw the fact that every blessing that Jesus announces is a blessing promised by God in the covenant uh, in the Old Testament. But these were covenant blessings that had never really been enjoyed by Israel. Sure, there were certain periods of time for, where for brief moments she experienced the covenant blessings. But when you looked at Israel's history as a whole, and certainly if you looked at Israel in the first century, the covenant blessings were like a dream. It was not part of their daily experience. And so by Jesus announcing that these covenant of blessings are now coming. Jesus is basically saying that the new covenant is here. The new testament that God has promised uh, in the old covenant has now come. And he is also announcing who the true covenant people are. Who are the true people of God who inherit the blessings. And Jesus is saying that it is his disciples He's not saying it's everyone born of Abraham. He's saying it's everyone born of Abraham or not, who has the faith of Abraham and who looks to him and follows him. So he is saying he is the Messiah. He is the one who defines Israel, just like Moses and David defined Israel in their own day. He is the ultimate Moses, the ultimate David. And his disciples, those who believe in him, are the true people of God who will inherit. Because in that day, there were a lot of competing parties and they were, there were competing uh, gospels, as there were, within the covenant people. There were a lot of voices saying, here's who the true people of God are. Here's how you inherit God's covenant blessings. And among those voices, Jesus is standing up and in an absolutely exclusive way says, I don't care if you've been liberal in the past, I don't care if you've been a Sadducee and you don't even believe in the resurrection. I don't care if that's your background. I don't care if you've been a conservative and you're a Pharisee and a scribe and you believe uh, in the resurrection and you have uh, worn the mantle and you enjoy this privileged status uh, among the people as being kind of the definers of what evangelical faith looks like. I don't care if that's who you are. I don't care if you're an Essene who has separated yourself and gone off to live out in caves, completely separate yourself from the worldliness that you see within Israel. I don't care. I'm cut, he's cutting across all of them. And he's saying those who give up their lives for my sake and none other will inherit the blessings of the covenant, for they are the true people of God. And he tells them that their purpose as his followers is to let their light shine. Let their light shine before men. Let their light shine. The first place it's going to shine is within the covenant community where there is a lot of confusion. Look at the Christian church today. 
broadly speaking, is it all squared away? Is it all walking according to the light? Or do we have just as much confusion as existed in first century Israel? He says, let your light shine that men may see your good works. They may see how you live and they may glorify your father who is in heaven. So he starts laying down these themes. If you're my disciple, then this is who God is in relationship to you. He is your father. And in that way, and in that way only, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. So, then he announces to them this earth-shaking warning that unless their righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, they will not in any way enter the kingdom of heaven. They will not be citizens of the kingdom. Now, righteousness was a Hebrew way of talking about faithfulness to God, covenant faithfulness. In other words, walking with God. Today, we talk about walking with God and living out the faith. That's what's meant by righteousness. And he says, unless your walk with God, unless your living out of the faith exceeds the scribes and Pharisees who are regarded as being the poster children of what? relationship with God and living out the faith mean. Unless you exceed them, you do not enter the kingdom of heaven. He then proceeds to restore the law. The promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 was a promise that God would give his spirit and by the spirit would write the law on the minds and hearts of his people. Well, for that to happen, the law needs to be restored to its proper place. So Jesus takes a hammer and a chisel, not to the law itself, but to all the barnacles and accretions and junk that the scribes and Pharisees had hung on the law. And then he starts talking about practicing your righteousness. He goes into this whole theme of, again, what does it mean to walk with God? What does it mean to live out the faith? And he starts correcting that. And he says the heart of walking with God and living out the faith is, well, walking with God. It comes down to a relationship with the Father. And he says it comes down to everything you do in the Christian life is an outgrowth of the fact that in your inmost being, you give yourself to God and you look to the Father and you, there are certain things you do in secret. You don't, you don't walk with God and live out the faith so people can see you and think what a wonderful Christian you are. That's not the point. That may be some result that God brings about, but that's not the point. You give yourself to God, and at the most fundamental level, that's something you do in secret. So the whole Christian life is a Godward thing. It is a Godward thing. You pray to God in secret. Doesn't mean it's not, it doesn't mean it's wrong to pray to God in public. It means that in your personal walk, you don't pray so that people can see you pray. You don't fast so people can see you fast. You don't give alms to the poor so that people can see that, so you can get glory from them. You're forgetting God. That's implicit idolatry. So at the heart of it is this relationship with the Father. And he, as part of that, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer to teach us how to pray. 
And as part of that, he's putting the truth in our mouths because he not only wants people who pray good things, he wants people who understand the good things they're praying for and actually want them from the heart. And now having done that, Jesus runs right into our passage today. And he starts talking about laying up treasure. He starts talking about Uh, the eye being the lamp of the body and letting light or darkness into the body. He starts talking about serving masters and saying that we cannot serve two masters and more pointedly, we cannot serve God and mammon. And it can seem like, because we don't understand how these things fit in, that Jesus is just beginning to check off some kind of a a list of unrelated things. Now, if if you went away to college, your mom probably sent you a letter or she would give you an email or text or maybe a phone call. And at the end of it, when there's not much time left, she starts telling you a bunch of things to make sure you don't forget you do. They're not necessarily connected. And a lot of times we think, well, that's what Jesus is doing here because we don't understand how this is connected. Well, that's not what Jesus is doing. What he's saying here is very much connected to what he has been talking about. He's talking about walking with God and living out the faith. And in that regard here, he gives us an exhortation, three reasons, and a warning. An exhortation, three reasons, and a warning. And they all have to do with the same thing. And that is, what are your priorities? What are you giving yourself to? What are you investing your life in? What is your focus in life. What or whom are you serving? And these are all ways of asking the same thing, and each one leads to the other. Whatever you give yourself to is what you are investing your life in. And whatever you invest in will be your passion. Whatever you give your life to, whatever you invest in, will be where your deepest loyalties and your deepest affections lie. And that's what Jesus means when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so that will be your passion, whatever you're giving your life to. And whatever your passion is, will be the focus of your life. That will be where your eyes, your inner eyes are focused all the time. If you see a young man or woman who's in love, uh, you will see them often looking at the one they love, even when that one is not looking at them. Their eyes keep going back to them. And that has this idea of focus. And whatever your focus is, you will serve. You will serve. As Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. We may try to make, it, we make ourselves think that we can, that what we're focused on, what we keep looking at in our lives, that we're not really serving that, we're really serving this other thing over here, or we're blending them together, Jesus says, no. Whatever you're focused on, whatever you're invested in, whatever you're giving your life to, that is what you're serving. And now you see we come full circle. For whatever you serve, you will give your life to. This is what Paul is getting at in the famous passage in Romans 12, where he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Give yourself to what? To God, which is your reasonable service. 
So it comes full circle. Whatever you serve, you will give yourself to. Whatever you give yourself to, you will serve. That will be your focus. That will be your passion. That will be where your heart is. And finally, whatever you serve and give yourself to and focus on will shape you. And it will shape your life. Where your, heart, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It will shape your heart. It will shape your inner person. And uh, verse 22, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Whatever, whatever you are focused on, you take into yourself. It comes in through your eyes. That's the analogy here. And it begins to shape you and to shape your life. Or you can turn this whole question around if you want. Here's the question to ask if you turn it around. What shape are your heart and your life taking on? Assess your heart. Assess your life. What's the shape of it? What's the shape of your heart? Where do your emotions, where do your thoughts, where do your passions linger? In what direction do they run? And what about your life? What shape is it taking on? If you stood back from it and looked at it as a big picture, what shape is it taking on? This will tell you what's shaping you. And whatever is shaping you is what you're serving. And whatever you're serving is what you're giving yourself to. It's what you're focusing on. It's where your heart is attached. That's where your deepest loves and loyalties lie. Now, that's the way life works. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the way life works. That's the way our hearts work. And there's no opting out of this. This is the way God has made the world. You can't say, well, this is not the way my heart works. This is not the way my life works. You can't say, well, you could say, well, I don't agree. I don't agree. Or you could say, who cares? But that's a tip-off right there. That something or someone other than Christ and His Word is shaping you and your life. And the reason why is because your deepest loyalties and affections are attached to something or someone else. Your focus is elsewhere. It's not on Christ. You're giving yourself and you're giving your life to something else. You're investing. That's what he means by laying up treasure. You're investing. You're betting on something else. You're putting your money on another number. Now, one of the things that is implicit in what Christ is saying here is that everyone is laying up treasure. He's not telling us whether to lay up treasure or not to lay up treasure. There is no option. You're laying up treasure. You're investing in something. You're betting your life on something. You're betting everyone in this world is betting their well-being, their happiness, and their fulfillment on something. Everyone is giving themselves away to something, even if it is themselves. We would often look at... Uh, Let's say we look at a man who lives paycheck to paycheck, Friday to Friday. And as soon as he gets that Friday paycheck in his pocket, he's off to the bar. And by the time uh, uh, Monday rolls around, 
All the money's gone. And we would say, this man is not investing in anything. He's not investing in anything. And, and we know what that means. He's not saving his money. He's not deferring gratification and putting it on something else. But Jesus would say, oh, yes, he is. He's investing. He's investing in himself, whatever he feels like at the moment. That's where he's putting his money. That's where he's putting his bet that his well-being, his happiness, and his fulfillment are found. And he's giving his life to that. That's where his heart is. That's where his focus is. That's where his love and his affections are. And that is what he is serving. So everyone is giving themselves away. You're giving yourself away to something or someone. You are. The question is, to what? And ultimately, it comes down to two categories, Jesus says. And there's all kinds of little flavors and variations. But he says, look, it, only, it always comes down to two basic categories. Everyone, everyone here, everyone in this world is laying up treasure in heaven or they are laying up treasure on earth. Ultimately, everyone is investing their life and betting their well-being, happiness, and fulfillment on things connected to the God of heaven and his kingdom of heaven, or they're investing their life and betting their well-being, happiness, and fulfillment on things connected to the current earthly world order, the things that drive this fallen world. So Jesus, you must remember, is not using heaven and earth in a spatial sense or in a dualistic sense. In other words, life on earth now versus life in heaven later. That's not what he's saying. That's not the way the Bible views heaven and earth ever. We constantly view it that way. The Bible never, ever views heaven and earth that way. Jesus is using heaven and earth here in a power and authority sense. Paul does the same thing in Romans 8 when he says this, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He's using the word law there the way we use the word law when we talk about the law of gravity. It's not a code. It's not written down anywhere. It's a force. It's a reigning principle. The law of gravity reigns over you. That's why you obey it continually. And you have no option. So Paul is saying the law, the reigning power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the reigning power of sin and death. So that's what we're talking about. You're either giving yourself to the things connected to the God of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, that is the reign of heaven, the reigning power of heaven and that world order, that the things that motivate God and heavenly life, or you're giving it to this world system and the things that make this fallen world go around. We can also see the same idea of heaven and earth when Jesus in Mark uh, chapter 11 stumps the Pharisees and the scribes by posing them this question. He says, uh, they've asked him a question. He said, I tell you what, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Here's my question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now, of course, they can't answer him. They don't want to answer him because they don't like where either one of those go. But look at how Jesus phrases this. Was the baptism of God from heaven or from men? 
He's not talking about earth versus heaven. He's not talking about this life versus some other life. What he means is, was John serving the interests of the God of heaven? Was he under the authority of the God of heaven when he baptized or was he not? But he says, was this baptism from heaven? This is what Jesus meant in John chapter 18 when he tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He's not saying my kingdom is not connected with this world. My kingdom doesn't concern this world. He's saying the authority, the authority and the power of my kingdom and the loves and the loyalties and the values of my kingdom are not of this world order here, Pilate, which you understand so very well. It's not of that. It's completely different It is a revolutionary way of being revolutionary, as N.T. Wright would say. So with Jesus, the kingdom, the reigning power of heaven, has broken into this world. And there is a war to the death between the kingdom of this world, its values, loves, and loyalties, and the kingdom of heaven, its values, loves, and loyalties. We're not just talking about well-being, happiness, and fulfillment in the next life somewhere else. We're talking about happiness, well-being, and fulfillment in this life as well. Listen to what Paul tells his beloved son in the ministry, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4. He says, exercise yourself toward godliness, Timothy, because I tell you, bodily exercise, it profits. But its profit is small in compared to the profit of godliness. And here's, here's the principle. Godliness, Paul says, is profitable for all things, having promise for the life that now is and of that which is to come. It's not a matter of be miserable now so that you can be happy then. Isn't that the way we think a lot? To the extent I am more miserable now, I'm going to be more happy then. And then we have to weigh it out. Remember, young five-year-old boy, when we lived in Florida, asking his dad about, he said, so, dad, so does it mean if you're not a Christian, you go to hell? And his dad said, well, yes, Johnny, that's, yep, yeah, that, that's right. He said, so, Johnny, do you want to be a Christian? Well, I don't want to go to hell. That's the answer. And we often think, okay, We've got to weigh this out because there's this inverse proportionality between happiness now and happiness then. That's not what the Bible is talking about. It's saying your well-being, your happiness, your fulfillment now as well as later is connected to the kingdom of heaven. Listen to Jesus in Mark chapter 10. He said, look. There's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, Jesus is not preaching what we know as the health and wealth gospel. He's not preaching that. He's not saying you identify with him, you suffer with him. Then out of the Coke machine comes the, the item which you ordered up. Stephen gave his life. And he didn't get any of this. He didn't get a new house. He didn't get a new job. He didn't get new family. He didn't get all that. 
But Jesus is saying this is the operating principle. We're talking about heaven coming here. Now. That's what we're talking about. And the return of Christ is the consummation of all of that. It's not the beginning of it. It's the final, it's the final perfection touch when the last enemy death is put down. And so that's what we're dealing with here. So we have a warfare between two kingdoms that are going on at this time. And Jesus is saying, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because an investment in the values, loves, and loyalties of this falling world is a losing investment. All kinds of things happen uh, in this fallen world when you bet on what makes this fallen world goes around. He talks about moth. He talks about rust. He talks about thieves. That's another way of saying, have you seen the, I can't remember which insurance company it is, but it's got Mr. Disaster, this guy who goes around and shows up and, and just everything goes wrong. He's just chaos. He's Mr. Chaos. That's what Jesus is saying. That what you're betting on, this is a, this is a system that has chaos implicit in it. And one way or another, you're going to lose your investment, no matter how it seems. And it may seem during your whole lifetime, oh, wow, this is the way to have true happiness. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, if that's where you put your life, if that's what you invest in, I'm telling you, you're going to lose your investment. You're going to lose your investment. It may seem during your life that, hey, this is the way to save my life. This is the way to really have life. Jesus says, you're going to lose your life. He's, it may seem like, look, going with Christ, that, it may seem like I'm giving everything up if I do that. Jesus says, I tell you this, you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. You will find it. So there are two aspects of a good investment, safety and rate of return. Safety and rate of return. Rate of return, does, is it going to pay you more than what you put in? Safety, is it a guaranteed payment? And there's all kinds of promises out there. If you get into the investment world, you'll see there's all kinds of promises for this investment and that investment. But they're always speaking to you about rate of return and Safety, to what extent can you count on it? The investment in this fallen world, its loves and loyalties, its promises of happiness, it fails on both counts. It's not going to pay you back more. It's going to suck up everything you put into it. It's not going to give you back. The bank is going to close. It's going to collapse. It's like the Social Security system. not going to pay. And it, it, it's, you're sure it's not sure either. But an investment in the values, loves, and loyalties of the kingdom of heaven gets an A++ rating. You know, you've got those ratings for investments, and they rate them, you know, A, B, C, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you have rating inflation, just like you have uh, with grades with kids nowadays. And so an A is not enough for the best rating. You have to have an A+. Plus. Well, a plus is not enough anymore. Now there's A++, plus plus, but that's not enough. Then we have A++, plus plus plus, you know, for the best and safest ratings. But anyway, an investment in the kingdom of heaven is the highest rated investment because it, Jesus guarantees you that it is going to give you 10,000-fold more than what you can ever put into it. You, he says... 
The eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it even entered into your heart. You're not capable of thinking about and assessing the value that you're going to get back. In the end, you're going to think about how little I put in, how little it cost me for all of this. That will be your assessment in the end. If you give your life to the values, loves, and loyalties of this fallen world, you're throwing your life away. And your heart and your life are going to be filled with darkness. And that's where Jesus gets into. That's why he suddenly starts talking about the eye being the light of the body. He's not, he's not, talking, he's not changing the subject. Your eyes were made to let in light. That's what it does. It lets in light. That's how you see And to say that your eyes are made to let in light is another way of saying that you were created to be focused on God. Because, as John tells us, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. As it says in Psalm 36, in God's light we see light. We only see light because of God's light. All light belongs to him, and we only see light if we're in his light. Now, let me give, that's the second part of Psalm 36.9. Let me give you the first part of Psalm 36.9 uh, and the last part. For, you, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Light and life go together in the Bible. They're never separated. So we look upon God. That's where we focus. Our life is flooded with light, and we have God's fountain of life within us, or as Jesus would say, fountains of living water, streams of living water. If your heart and life focus is on anything other than God, then you have yourself an idol. I don't care how good whatever it is you're focused on. If it's not God, it is an idol. If your ultimate focus is on anything other than God, you have an idol, you've taken your focus off God, and your heart and your life will be filled with darkness. You're not going to know where you're going. You will stumble repeatedly into harmful things throughout your life, and you won't even know what you're stumbling over. You'll be like somebody walking uh, around in a strange house in pitch blackness. You don't know where anything is. You're going to be stumbling into everything, and you won't know over what you were stumbling. That's what it says in Proverbs 4:19. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. So we are to have our ultimate focus on the God in whom is all light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. If our ultimate focus is on something else, we have darkness. We're taking in darkness instead of light, and that's what we have in it. And then Jesus gives us this warning in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. He's bringing things to a point here. You have one focus. You have one investment. You have one thing you're giving your life to. Not two. One. It's not complicated. It's simple. We make it complicated because we want to obscure the truth. Jesus says no one can serve two masters He will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. It's like a man having two wives and thinking that he loves them both. Or he's got a wife and a girlfriend, and I I love them both. No fool, you love neither. You love yourself. 
the nature of a wife means exclusive love. One woman. That's why it says of Jacob that he loved Rachel and hated Leah. Well, he didn't hate Leah. He didn't despise Leah. He didn't want to kill Leah. Why does the Bible speak like that? Well, because you have one wife, one woman that your love and loyalty go toward. And when you have two, not both of them cannot be in first place. Leah was in second place, and when you put that in marriage, it means hatred. It means hatred. Now, Jesus then makes this point. You cannot serve God and mammon. And you say, where is that coming from? Now, all of a sudden, what is he talking about money? Where is that coming from? Well, mammon is a very interesting word. It's a transliteration from the Chaldean language. Mammon in the Chaldean language, the word it comes from, was the Syrian god of riches. The Syrian god of riches. But very interestingly, the root of the word means that which is trusted in. The root of the word that is this god's name means that which is trusted in. So the god of riches, that which is trusted in. So the issue is not money or wealth per se. It's idolatry. Whatever we place our ultimate trust in is our God. And we know what we place our ultimate trust in by looking at what we serve at the most basic level, what's shaping us, what our focus is on, where our passion is. We will always trust, we will always serve the God we trust to take care of us. And Jesus is pointing out here that many who profess to trust and serve Jehovah, the God who made all things and from whom all blessings, including wealth, flow, we're actually trusting in and serving wealth itself, thus making it an idol. Now, it's important for us to, to understand that wealth is not evil. Wealth is the blessing of God, but we have to remember that wealth is also the curse of God. It depends on the person's relationship to God. Wealth is one of God's promised covenant blessings in the Old Testament, as are power and prestige. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 8. And John was reading from that passage this morning in the scripture reading. He says, look, when I give you all this wealth and stuff that I'm going to give you when you go into land, remember, remember me, because it's, it is I who give you the power to get wealth. And the reason why I give you the power to get wealth is to establish my covenant. You see, it's not just about things far away. It's about blessing here and now as well. So it's about idolatry. And idolatry comes in any time we separate the gift from the giver. Any time we take any good thing in this world and we separate it from the God who has given it to us. When we connect the gift to the giver, the greater the gift, the more our gratitude, the more our, our thankfulness to God for the gift. But if we separate the gift from the giver, the greater the gift, the prouder we become the more entitled we become, the more puffed up and idolatrous we become. And so you always end up with idolatry. Listen to Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, godliness automatically by definition includes contentment, but Paul adds it because he wants to make sure that we don't miss this point. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world. It is for sure that we will take nothing out. 
So, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. He's not saying pursue a life of poverty. He's not saying pursue the most minimalistic life you can. What he's saying is, if God has provided our basic needs, whether he's provided them sufficiently, whether he's provided them over abundantly, be content. Be content. Part of Christian maturity is growing up so that we can handle wealth. We can handle wealth. We can handle power. We can handle prestige, which wealth brings. We can handle all those things. And the more they go up, the more grateful we become. The more they go up, the more humble we become. The more we serve God and others. That's the way it's supposed to be. But this is a long process, and we've got a ways to go as Christians on this. God created everything very good. That includes wealth. And the things that come along with wealth, power and prestige. You know, if you told people, if you said, or maybe you've done this yourself, you know, when when nobody's looking, nobody knows what you're thinking, not even God knows what you're thinking. And you go, if I could have anything in the world, one thing, that's it, one, what would it be? Well, if you tell the truth, you're usually going to be thinking about things like power, popularity, talent, intelligence. You know, we're not going to... The first thing to our minds, if we're honest, a lot of times is not that Christ would be owned as Lord by every person in this world. You know, if we're honest, that's not always the first thing that comes to our minds. But, you know, I think a lot of people would come down and and the majority of the people of the world, if they really thought about it, they'd say, I would like wealth. Because if you are really wealthy, you will be powerful. You will be powerful whether or not you have a government office or not. If you're really wealthy, you're going to be popular. Everybody's going to laugh at your jokes. Everybody's going to want to know your opinion. As it says in Proverbs, the rich man never lacks for friends. He may lack for true friends, but he never lacks for friends. So Paul says, be content when God is taking care of our basic needs, whether he's doing it overabundantly or not. He says, because those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and in its many foolish, harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. uh, perdition. He says the love of the money is the root of... It goes out in all kinds of troubled ways. It's the root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, you, Timothy, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love patience, and humility. So, God creates everything good, including wealth, but everything that God created good is capable of perversion. And while everything is capable of perversion, not everything is equally prone to perversion. Those things most prone to perversion are those things which are the most desirable and topping the list is wealth because it always brings power and prestige with them and power and prestige bring a whole lot of other bennies with them. This is, the, this is Jesus' way of touching on this, but this is, he's talking about the same thing that the Apostle John does in 1 John when he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It's what Jesus is touching on. So avoiding money is no answer. Asceticism, monasticism, vows of poverty are no answer. As Paul points out in Colossians 2, all of those things can be done in the flesh, 
And so they can become just another suit of clothing that the flesh wears in order to be all things to all people. Do you know that? Did you know that your flesh is all things to all people? It'll accommodate you any which way you want to go. You want to live like a rock star? You want to live like an ascetic? Hey, baby, it's good. It's all good to me. The flesh will go right with you. Would that it were that simple. Then being godly would be simple. But godliness requires maturity. Good and evil are moral categories. Rich and poor are not. So, here's some applications for you. Number one, give yourself to God. Follow what Paul says in Romans 12. Present yourself, and that means your body to your whole self. Give yourself to God. And children, you don't have to be very old before you know what I'm talking about here. If you're five, maybe even younger than that, I think you know what I'm talking about. If you're a teenager, you certainly know what I'm talking about. Make a decision. Now, I'm not trying to get into, you know, decision of theology. I prayed the magic words. I walked the magic aisle. I threw the magic pine cone in the fire. Therefore, God is... I'm not talking about that. But there is a decision. God is sovereign. But we still make decisions. And you're giving your life to something. Right now. Already. You know how to give yourself to something. You've been doing it since you've been born. I'm telling you, give yourself to God. Go to God in prayer and say, God, I give myself to you. I want to follow you. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to fall short. But I give myself to you. I trust you. I place my life and everything I have on you and what you promise Secondly, pursue God, which means you start out by pursuing Him in secret. That's what Jesus has been talking about, Matthew 6. Pursue God in secret. Seek times of fellowship with Him. Jesus made it clear after His resurrection that He's going to be present with us and He's going to commune with us through His Word, through prayer, through gathering with His people, through gathering over this table. So in secret, pursue God, seek His face in prayer, thank Him, for his goodness to you, and spend time in his word. That's how he fellowships with you and will reveal himself to you and then conform you to his image. Next, moving outward, pursue the things that Paul tells Timothy to pursue. Righteousness, that means faithfulness. It just means being faithful to God, moment in and moment out. Pursue godliness, God-likeness, being like him. Pursue faith. Everything you do, let it be motivated by faith. Pursue love. Let everything you do be motivated by love. Pursue steadfastness and pursue humility. Pursue those things. And give yourself to those things which are eternal. What does the Bible speak of as being eternal? God, His Word, His kingdom, and people. For better or for worse... People last forever. If you're giving yourself to God, to his word, to his kingdom, to other people, that means seeking their good, then you are betting on, you're you're investing in 
that which is sure to pay off and to pay off in huge ways. And there's other things then as you work this. Give yourself to your local church. The church is your mother, whether you know it or not. The church is your mother. God is your father, but the church is your mother. Okay? Now, your mother is fallen. Your father isn't. Your mother is. But she's your mom. And, and she's here for your blessing. And so, support your mother. And it's impossible to support your mother without supporting your local church. You can't support the concept of a mother. Support the mother you can see, the mother that you actually are part of. Support the church. One of the ways you can do that is by cheerfully tithing. Now, this is not a tithing sermon. Never preach one. We're not hard up for money. We don't have any building drive. We don't have any of that stuff going on. So, relax. But... Tithing is God's way for you to make a token investment and to say in front of everybody, I know, I know who is in charge of this world. I know which kingdom is going to win, and I know which investment is sure. And so when you tithe, you're not throwing money away. You're not losing money. You're making an investment, and God knows it. Nobody knows what you're giving here. God knows in secret. You're giving in secret. Rejoice in the Lord's day. I don't want to get into a bunch of rules there because it's so easy for us to take something that's supposed to be joyful and turn it into a big heavy weight and it becomes ugly very quickly. But I'll just leave it there with you in concept to understand that we do have a special day that God calls us to rest and rejoicing, of getting together with one another and, and just having your tank filled, really. And so do that. Invest in your marriage. Invest in your spouse. If you have children, invest in your children. Invest in your Christian friends. Invest in those whom God puts into your life who are lost, that he gives you opportunity to invest in them. Look for opportunity to share the light with them. These are all ideas, and there's many others. But I leave these with you. But do take stock this week. What's the shape of my heart? What's the shape of my life? And start working backwards from there and give yourself to God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.